The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, broadcasting from the Cromer Mashburn Family Studios here at the Maple Knoll Radio Network. As always, striving to be your public radio source for the inspiration and information you need to start or grow your own real estate investing business. And today, it being the last Wednesday of the month, is question and answer week. We're going to call it stump the goddess week. Because what that means is whatever you want to talk about is what we're talking about today. I have zero prepared statements. It's all about your questions about finding, negotiating, financing, buying, rehabbing, managing, renting, selling, lease optioning, wholesaling, retailing, investment real estate. You can ask your questions live by calling 877-772-9658, or you can go to our website at realliferealestate.com, where not only will you find podcasts of all of our previous shows, but you will also uh, find an Ask Vina a Question link. If you enter your question there and then hit the send button. It'll come here via email. So for your questions, 877-772-9658 or realliferealestate.com. And please don't sit there for the next 50 minutes thinking, should I ask a question? Because the answer is yes. If you have it, chances are other people have it too. And without you, there is no show. I'm going to take a few questions from folks who sent them in prior to the program because they are members of our email list at realliferealestate.com and got notification a couple of hour ago, hours ago about question and answer day and have had time to formulate some questions. Uh, first question here is from Wilson, who is in New York City, New York City. Challenging real estate market, New York City. If I lived in New York City, I would be doing things in the boroughs. Uh, So um, he has a number of questions and uh, try and try and tackle these quickly. Question number one about wholesaling. He says, my understanding is that in wholesaling, your three primary target buyers are the fix and flipper, in other words, the retailer, the buy and hold person, in other words, the landlord, and the retail buyer, 
the homeowner. Which one of these should we focus on to make the most profit in today's market so that we can decide our target area? Well, Wilson, I want to make a correction to your assumption here about who your buyers are if you're going to wholesale real estate. The retail buyer is not one of your target buyers. Retail buyers uh, need to buy directly from people who own houses. And as a wholesaler, your goal is typically to get a property under contract and assign the contract. Your, your standard retail buyer cannot buy from you as a wholesaler because they need to go to the bank and get financing and that's a long uncertain process and also the properties that you're going to get good deals on are not homeowner ready. They're not in a condition where a homeowner could possibly buy them. So scratch that off your list. Scratch the retail buyer off your list of potential buyers for your wholesale deal. In terms of the other two, the renter, the uh, landlords and the retailers, and which one you should focus on, the answer is neither. Because as a wholesaler, you don't focus on buyers. You focus on deals. And when you find a great deal, whether it is a retail type deal or a rental type deal, you simply go find the person that wants to take that off your hands for an assignment fee. If you limit yourself or if you say, I am really going to go after the, the retail type properties because I want retail type buyers, then you walk away from potential profits on rental properties. And if you do it the other way around and only go after rental properties, you, of course, cut out all the potential deals that you could ultimately sell to retail buyers. So um, I can I can tell from the nature of your questions here that you are um, in the process of studying wholesaling, but don't have a really firm grip on how it works and the legalities and uh, who your best customers are. Uh, so I would suggest a little bit more study on this topic maybe before you jump in to the market. Uh, another question that Wilson had was, how do you create a simultaneous closing that is legal, that is Dodd-Frank compliant, and will sell in the marketplace? Again, the Dodd-Frank Act does not apply to cash transactions of any sort. It only applies to transactions where uh, the, the seller is carrying financing or where there is financing involved in some way. Maybe there's a third-party lender involved. And it does not apply to any transaction, even if it is a finance transaction, where an investor is the buyer. In other words, someone who is not does not intend to live in the property is the buyer. So you don't really have to worry about Dodd-Frank in regards to wholesaling. Uh, simultaneous closings that are legal are another question because in some states there are there is something called uh, typically called a good funds law, and the good funds law says that if you're going to buy a property and then immediately re immediately resell it, which in and of itself is perfectly legal, unless there's a complication where you've bought the property from a bank who said as part of the deal that you couldn't immediately resell it. Uh, that the money has to come from two different people for the two different closings. So in other words, if you're, if you're buying a property at nine in the morning and you're selling it at 10 in the morning, 
the money for you to buy it at nine in the morning cannot come from the guy that you're selling it to at 10 in the morning. And that's usually uh, what folks are talking about when they talk about a simultaneous closing or a double closing is a closing where the first transaction from the seller to you is funded by the guy in the second transaction from you to him. So you need to check and see if your state has a good funds law, because if it does, your solution, if you, for some reason, need to buy the house and then resell it as opposed to assign the contract, is going to be something like a transactional funder. A transactional funder is somebody who makes it his business to loan money to people for an hour or two so that they can close wholesale deals and then turn around and resell them. Uh, transactional funders, uh, perhaps it's needless to say, do charge money for that service. They charge a rate uh, on the uh, money that you borrow that can range between about one and three quarters percent of what you borrowed. And I, I've seen transactional funding that costs up to three percent of what you borrowed. So you'd better uh, make sure that you have worked that into a uh, wholesale fee. You know, if you have, you better have enough profit in that deal is what I'm saying to pay for that. Wilson also has another question. If an investor has a wholesale deal and wants to flip to a retail buyer who has an FHA loan for maximum profit, can you explain the FHA anti-flipping guidelines? What can and cannot we do as an investor? Okay, again, you're not going to sell to retail buyers. You're certainly not going to sell to retail buyers unless you have already closed the property and generally that's not going to be a same day type closing just just get that whole thing out of your head just for, forget flipping to retail buyers and you said for maximum profit because you're thinking well a retail buyer will pay more for a property than an investor will and that would be true if the property were in move-in condition but the wholesale deals you're going to find the ones that can actually be purchased at the fraction of the after repaired value, less repair costs that you need it to be are not going to be properties that these homeowners that you're referencing could get uh, FHA financing in any case. So thank you for your questions, Wilson. Uh, you're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It is question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. You can ask your questions at 877-772-9658 or via our contact form on our website, realliferealestate.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate here on WLHS and WMKV. You can always stay in touch with Real Life Real Estate through our brand new, completely updated, much prettier and more effective website at realliferealestate.com. Uh, you'll find lots of great stuff there, including podcasts of, uh, of all of our previous shows here on WMKV going back uh, a number of years and containing over 200 uh, shows that you can download and listen to the my melodious voice 24 hours a day for at least a week if you are so inclined. There's also almost always a special guest, uh, gift for listeners at realliferealestate.com. Uh, this week it is an opportunity to attend a five-week wholesaling quick start program. It actually started uh, two Tuesdays ago had another episode last night and have three more to go and you can get registered for that 
at realliferealestate.com. Suddenly, there are a whole bunch of questions here in the Real Life Real Estate inbox. If you're wondering how these folks manage to ask questions about uh, real estate, it's by going to realliferealestate.com and clicking that button that says Ask Vina a Question. A question from Judy. She says, I'm just getting back into investing, specializing in rent-to-own lease options. I'm still a sole proprietor. How do I take the option fee? Do I need a tax ID number, business checking account, etc.? I'm as broke as it gets right now. So anything that costs money is pretty much out of the question. I hope to sign up one or maybe two deals in the next few days. And I have an associate that I pay as well. Well, Judy, until you get to the point where you can do what every legal expert who has ever been on real life real estate has suggested and set up an LLC for your real estate company, uh, it's probably a good idea to open up a separate bank account for your activities here just for the purpose of uh, ease of tax filing when the year is up. Um It'll be in your name with your own social security number because right now you don't have another tax ID number under which to open it. Uh, it'll allow you to have, you know, business checks that you treat differently than your other checks. It'll allow you to keep some money in reserves for business. And uh, ultimately, when it comes to the end of the year and you're turning your QuickBooks over to your accountant or running them through your software or whatever, uh, you'll be able to file that Schedule C that you're going to end up filing because you are a sole proprietor uh, much more easily. It'll just be easier to see what transactions happened in that account. Uh, as soon as you are feeling a little a little more, you know, prosperous, uh, be a good idea to get with a an experienced uh, tax attorney, accountant, and asset protection attorney, or maybe you've got a tax and asset protection attorney, potentially, and talk to them about the best LLC setup for you, whether it's going to be better to ha- to be taxed as a uh, um, corporation or a partnership, and go ahead and get that set up for both asset protection purposes and something that you don't think you have to worry about right now, which is minimizing your taxes, but hopefully will happen for you very, very quickly. I always wish for people that their taxes become complicated and expensive sooner rather than later, because that is a sign that you are doing well. Question from Michael. Actually, it's not a question. It's an auction update. Michael had sent in a question probably a month or a month and a half ago about a property that he was auctioning off and asked if there were any ways that he could potentially attract more buyers to that auction and uh, hopefully get an increased price. And he is updating us all. He says, thank you so much for your advice. When I asked about auctioning the property last month, the property sold to a cash buyer for $160,000. Now I am in the enviable position of evaluating how to invest cash instead of how to raise it. Yes, that is indeed an enviable position, and congratulations, Michael, on your successful auction. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate. It's question and answer week here at the show, and you can call in questions about any aspect of real estate investing 
at 877-772-9658. You can also send an email by going to realliferealestate.com and just clicking the tab that says, Ask Vina a Question. Tara in Iowa says, I am having challenges trying to figure out what a good deal is, especially for landlord buyers. Most of my buyers are getting a loan on the house. Any suggestions? Well, big, fat, giant suggestion number one is find some cash buyers. Because although the fact that your buyers potentially want to get a loan on the property doesn't really affect whether it's a good deal or not, it does, in fact affect how difficult it's going to be for you to sell it to them. Very, very difficult to wholesale properties to people who are getting conventional loans. And for the same reasons that I told Wilson, it's too slow, it's too uncertain, and very often at the end of the loan, at the end of the the underwriting process, the uh, bank comes back to you or to your buyer and says, wait, we can't finance this. There's no contract here that we can find between the actual owner of the property and you. And then you get into this whole situation where you're trying to get paid to step out of the deal, which isn't really wholesaling and which has some regulatory consequences or you're scrambling around trying to find another buyer. Trust me, Tara, there are plenty of cash buyers out there looking for deals. Don't mess with the ones who have to get financing. That's their problem. That's not your problem. Now, if they're getting a private loan on the property, that's a whole different situation or a hard money loan or something where the underwriting is not going to be the big hang up, then I take it all back. Those folks, those folks are fine to sell to. But uh, trying to figure out what a good deal is as a wholesaler isn't, isn't that difficult. It's what is the deal that leaves an amount of profit on the table for the buyer that the buyer would be looking for in any deal. And you've probably heard the the standard uh, formula, which is after paired value times 0.7 minus repair costs. And there, there are some variations of that formula if the property is in particularly excellent shape or particularly horrible shape or... Um, you know, if you were to be providing the financing, that there would be a different formula. But, you know, 90% of the time, that formula works great. In the case of landlord properties, which is what you say you're struggling with here, the challenge is often that the first part of that formula, which is after repaired value times 0.7, is impossible to find through comparables, which is normally how we want to find values. We want to see other fixed up properties that have sold and what did they sell for. In some rental neighborhoods, there just aren't any fixed up comps that have sold. Every comparable that you've seen is um, a short sale. It's a sheriff sale. It's a sale of a bank owned property. It's a sale that clearly states that the property was in distressed condition at the time that sold, which means it's not, wasn't in after repaired condition. So with landlord properties, there is a little bit of a more complex uh, formula that you can do when there are no comps to work with. 
And unfortunately, it's not one that's going to work on the radio unless Mike can flip on the video so everybody can see that through their radio because I, you know, I kind of need to draw it out for you. Um, if the folks who are subscribed to our e-letter at realliferealestate.com want to see that formula, what I will do is I will put it out in the e-letter next week and it'll walk you through like, how do I figure out what this property is worth to a landlord? Because that, that's that's what it does. It, it basically uses income and expenses and says, what does your typical landlord want to make on a particular property? And thus, what should he be paying for it? So um, one really good question to ask your buyers, though, Tara, is what are you looking to make on a property? If I, if I were to sell you a rental property, how much cash flow or how much return on investment how do you even how do you even calculate that mr buyer because if you get some input from different buyers they will it'll start to sort of start to gel to you that hey if i sell it at this price and my typical buyer is paying cash and he wants a nine percent cash on cash return that i can do a formula and back it in and say this is this is the price at which i need to sell it in order for them to get a 9.9 percent return so um, good question, Tara. And if folks say they want to see that formula, I will send it out next week to the folks who are subscribed at realliferealestate.com. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. You can ask your questions by calling 877-772-9658 or by sending an email. You can do that just by going to our website, realliferealestate.com, clicking the button that says Ask Vina a Question, typing it out and hitting send. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate. And that means there is no topic except whatever you want to talk about regarding real estate. 877-772-9658 for fastest service. When those phone lines light up, that's the first folks who get their questions answered. Uh, otherwise, you can certainly send us an email by going to realliferealestate.com and clicking on the Ask Vina a Question button. A question here from Wesley in Georgia. Wesley says, I just started listening to your radio station and I think it's amazing the handiwork and content you have put into these shows. Yeah, excellent guests, mostly Wesley. Uh, I'd like to ask a question and hope she could help me out with this. Um, I need some help concerning owner financing, the calculations on how to handle providing offers to sellers and buyers, creating a win-win for us all. Uh, I'm looking for ways to expand my opportunities into doing more deals. I understand the process of owner financing, the things leading up to presenting the offer. I guess bottom line is the confidence of knowing what, that you are, what you are doing is ethical and fair knowing that I'm doing my part to make a no deal into a deal when the seller did not want to accept a cash offer. So as an example, I have a property valued at $100,000 that's free and clear. The seller just wants to do a deal, but not my wholesale cash offer. My three options would be net payments, interest payments, or cash. What would be ways to work the numbers in determining a monthly payment with interest to my seller with or without a balloon payment and how to make those numbers make sense for a tenant buyer. 
your statement that this is a loaded question, Wesley, was in fact correct because I'm I'm seeing like eight questions in here, whether you see them or not. Um, let me go with the last one first, which is how to figure out like what what payments to offer. The answer is you have to begin with the end in mind. You have to start with what is my exit strategy on this property? And and you can't just like randomly decide that. You have to look at the property and say, what is a good exit strategy for this property? Is a tenant buyer really the best end user or does it need enough work that probably it's an investor buyer who's the best, at least buyer for you? And then sort of look at the market and say, all right, if it is going to be a tenant buyer, is the house worth $100,000 as is? And if so, what could I reasonably sell it for given that uh, although the tenant can live there right now, they don't actually have to buy for a couple of years. Uh, and if the, if the, if it's a hundred thousand dollar property, the answer is probably somewhere between like 105 and 107. And then the next question is how much could I expect to get up front uh, in that price range, it's not going to be a ton of money up front, probably $2,500, $3,000, maybe $5,000. And then what would this house rent for if the tenant were just to rent it? And that will sort of give you parameters in terms of, I know what I can get, and thus I can figure out what I can give. It is a huge mistake not to think that through in, in detail first because it's it's common uh, for particularly folks who are doing this for the first time to commit to a payment to their seller of $700 a month when what they can get from their buyer is $750. And they say, oh, well, that's that's great. I can make $50 a month. Nope. <laughs> If you're putting out 700 and getting in 750, you are not making 50 bucks a month. You are making negative money per month because if the property goes vacant, then you're going to have painting, carpeting, you know, you need you need some money worked in there for like both profit and reserves. So, begin with the end in mind and then from that work out what you can reasonably offer the seller. In the, in the example you gave, I'm assuming that the house is worth roughly 100 and he wants roughly 100 because you said he did not want to accept your cash offer, which probably would have been south of 70, right? So you're trying to find a way to give him his $100,000. And if that is the case, if it's worth 100 and he's asking 100, he'd better give you terms that are spectacular. You should not be interested in this deal at all unless he is giving you terms that make it so brain dead obvious that you cannot not take it. So what would those sorts of terms be? Zero interest would be good. Low payments over a long time would be good. Because basically what he's doing here is he's telling you, you can't make any profit from equity because I'm not giving you any equity. So where are you going to get your profit from? Pay down and cash flow, right? So just theoretically, 
maybe he takes a he takes five hundred dollars a month for two hundred months. That would be a no interest deal that might interest you if in fact the property would rent for seven fifty a month. Um, don't don't try to fit the deal to what you think the seller wants. Uh, he's he's already told you he's already laid down one term, which is I have to have a hundred thousand dollars. You lay down the rest of them. There's a rule that's my price, your terms, your price, my terms, right? He's named the price. So now you tell him what terms are going to make you happy, not just satisfied, but happy. And if he says no, then he needs to go find another buyer because he wants it all. He wants his price and his terms. And you that's not somebody with a problem that um, you can solve. Now, I liked your question about knowing what you're offering is ethical and fair. And that's another thing that I wish more people would put more thought into because uh, what you can get away with and what is equitable and fair are often two different things in our business. Uh, from the from the point of view of the seller, of like, am I being ethical and fair with the seller? You need to not promise anything that you can't realistically do. And again, that's you knowing your business and understanding what this person on the back end is likely to do. And that if that person on the back end fails, that you can still carry the payments for a few months and continue to do what you said you were going to do with your seller. Uh, disclose any risks that there might be here. You know, when you when you buy a property subject to the existing loan, there's a risk that the bank could call the loan due just because you bought it subject to the existing loan. And that risk needs to be disclosed to the seller. Don't assume that he knows about that and don't assume that he knows what the consequences of that to him are because the consequences are he goes through a foreclosure despite the fact that the property is or the payments are being made on the property uh, if you tell him that and he says oh my gosh I don't want to do that good thing you told him right good thing good thing he doesn't find it out because the bank called the loan due um, don't put sellers in a position where they are likely to be taking on more risk than they can handle. Uh, if they, uh, if a seller says to you, I can take payments for a year, but at the end of the year, I'm getting a heart transplant and I must have my money or I cannot get my heart transplant. And you don't have, like, you can't definitely pay him off at the end of that year. And not, not, oh, I can pay you off if my tenant buyer pays me off like he's supposed to then don't do that deal. That's more risk than that seller can handle, even if he agrees uh, to do it with you. So, uh, you know, just, just, just think these things through. Ask yourself if an investor approached your grandma with this deal, would you tell your grandma to do it? Or would you go punch the investor in the face for even suggesting it? And if the answer is you'd punch him in the face, don't do it with anybody else either. There's lots and lots of um, potential ethical pitfalls that folks don't understand because they just don't understand the strategy well enough to understand what the pitfalls are. So uh, good for you for think thinking them through. Keep thinking them through. Disclose. Don't put anybody in a position that they can't afford to be in. And uh, generally, if you follow those rules, you will, you will be all right. 
So thank you very much for your question, Wesley. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. If you have a question, you have about five more minutes to get it in and realistically uh, expect that we'll be able to answer it before the end of the show. You can do that via email by going to realliferealestate.com and filling in our question and answer form. Or you can give us a call at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate. Email your questions by going to realliferealestate.com and... Or call them in at 877-772-9658. Any question today, whether it's more of a beginner question, more of an experienced investor question, any question you have, this is your chance to ask it. If you happen to be listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing through our podcast, please don't call the number because Real Life Real Estate is a live radio show. It occurs on Wednesdays from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can listen in live in the Cincinnati area at 89.3 or 89.9 FM or live streaming from anywhere in the world at WMKVFM.org. Or as I discovered last week when I was trapped in the Raleigh airport and desperately trying to listen to the show because Drew was hosting it and I was terrified about what would happen with Drew hosting the show. I discovered that there is a WMKV app on iTunes, or on, yeah, on iTunes, and I downloaded it to my phone, and I pushed the button, and I heard Mr. Drew, which was a, was a little bit horrifying. You typically won't hear Mr. Drew when you do that, but you can always, you know, set a reminder in your phone and say, "Oh, five o'clock, gotta hit my WMKV app." That's MKV, like in Vina. So. That would be a good thing for you to check out if you keep forgetting to listen to the program because you have to be by a computer. You don't have to be by a computer. A question from Russell in New York City. What is up with New York City today? So many New York City listeners. Of course, there's like, what, 10 million people, 11 million people there. So, you know, I guess that could be part of the reason. He says, what are the best sources of marketing when looking for opportunities in the NYC area? I attend many meetup groups and other sources. Um, Again, Russell, as I said at the beginning of the program, when Wilson from New York City had asked his questions, if I were a wholesaler and I lived in New York City, I would be looking for wholesale deals out in the boroughs. And God forbid, I know there's going to be a massive gasp from the Isle of Manhattan when I say this. New Jersey. New Jersey would be another good place to look for wholesale deals. And the reason is real estate on the island is so competitive and I mean, God, they don't even have a, they don't even have an MLS in New York City. Like, if I'm an agent and I want to show another agent's listing, I better know that agent or look in the newspaper, look in Craigslist, because I can't just like automatically go set an appointment through MLS. And 
Also, of course, properties are extraordinarily highly priced and very highly in demand. And so uh, jump on a train, get yourself to Brooklyn or to the Bronx or to Queens or, you know, over to Newark and look at some deals over there. Um, My favorite way of finding wholesale deals period is driving for dollars now most of my students in new york city don't have cars because they don't want to pay more than my monthly house payment to park them so that might not be an option for you but you can certainly get lists of out of town owners and folks who have uh, code violations and you know all the usual suspect types of sellers who are going to own one two and three families and who might just be anxious to sell them because of the condition and because of, um, you know, they just, they don't want them anymore. They've got a, they've got a problem. So that would be my Midwestern advice to the Big Apple in terms of uh, wholesaling there. Question from Rick in Orlando. Rick says, I have a lot in a subdivision that is basically undeveloped in South Florida. That's interesting. So somebody platted out the subdivision and then sold the lots. Is that what happened there? I mean, I know that does happen. I'm not I'm not expressing shock or anything. Just um, I, I guess what I'm asking is the lot undeveloped or is the subdivision undeveloped? Because it could be... Either way, he says, what ways besides the MLS should I be marketing it for sale? Well, um, number one, put it in Craigslist. I see ads, although this is this is strictly speaking against Craigslist's rules. I see properties and lots for sale in Florida on Cincinnati Craigslist fairly regularly because, of course, when we're up here, shivering in the middle of the winter and thinking man i wish i lived in florida those things look very attractive now unfortunately of course you've got a zillion different you know there's craigslist here and in dayton and in columbus and so it's not realistic that you could post those everywhere but certainly post them in south florida craigslist because if i were looking for a lot and if i saw one if i saw one of those ads and said you know what i do want to find a lot in south florida i would go on craigslist and look in south florida uh it's a it's a big question mark to me whether this is a lot in an undeveloped subdivision or if it's an undeveloped lot. Because if it's in an undeveloped subdivision, you probably have a lot of people in that subdivision that want to sell their lots. If it's an undeveloped lot that could be built on, I would be getting a, a list of every builder who had bought a lot and built on it in the last four or five years in that area. And I would be calling them directly because they may not be aware, even though it's in MLS that you have it for sale. And if the subdivision uh, is in fact developed, I would probably put some little signs at the expressway exit and close to the entrance that said, must sell lot, call this number because that you're most likely buyer or someone who lives around there or who builds around there. So that is what uh, I would say, or you could try the thing that Mike did and maybe do an auction on it. So um, yeah, let me know whether it's an undeveloped lot or an undeveloped subdivision. 
Real Life Real Estate, it's question and answer week. You got one more chance to get a question in here by going to realliferealestate.com. I have uh, one more question here to answer for, who is this for? Sylvia, Sylvia. Sylvia says, could you talk about driving for dollars? Um, Yes, I can talk about driving for dollars. It's one of my favorite topics. Driving for dollars is one of the many ways that folks, not just wholesalers, but all folks who are looking for real estate deals, uh, will use to find relatively low competition deals from relatively highly motivated people. The concept is you get in your car, you go to a neighborhood where you want to buy a property, or if you're a wholesaler, you go to a neighborhood where you think there might be some motivated sellers of properties, and you drive it block by block by block. And every time you see a house that is clearly both vacant and unmaintained, so high grass, boarded up, uh, lots of mail on the porch and also the gutter is falling down, you know, th- those sorts of signs. You write down that address and then you go home and you look up in your county auditor site who the owner is and hopefully you will find in that site where the owner lives. Now, sometimes you're going to look that up and it's going to say Joe Blow lives at 123 Easy Street and you know perfectly well he doesn't live at 123 Easy Street because 123 Easy Street is boarded up. That's why you wrote down the address. So of every hundred addresses you write down, you're only maybe going to get 55 to 60 real potential leads because some of them are going to be bank owned and you're not going to bother to write to those. Some of them are going to be same address and you can't find a different address for Joe Blow. So you're going to discard that one. Um, The concept here is that vacant houses cost people money. Like no, nobody aspires to own a vacant property. You know, if it used to be your home and it's, you're not living there anymore. It's probably because you bought another house and you are, uh, paying paying two payments, right? I mean, you you moved and your other house didn't sell, so there's there's two payments to be made and two tax bills and two insurances, and you're maybe heating the house or cooling it or whatever. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is it was supposed to be a rental property, and either your tenant moved out or it just got into such bad shape that you really can't rent it anymore. And again, costing you money. One way or another, costing you money, and it's not it's not a valuable asset to you. So, uh, the concept is you f- find these people, you write them a little note that says, "Hey, if you're interested in selling your house, I'd be interested in buying it," and uh, mail it to them. And if you're doing this right, and you really are focusing on the vacant, ugly properties, roughly, I don't know, five to fifteen percent of the people should respond to you at least at least to call and say yeah i am kind of interested now that doesn't maybe mean you're going to make a deal but they they should call you um here's one other rule be careful about what neighborhood you're driving in because the better the neighborhood the harder it is to find vacant ugly houses and the less likely it is that the seller is motivated to sell at an investor type price my general rule is if i 
am not writing down an address about every 45 seconds, I'm in the wrong neighborhood to be driving for dollars. So mostly it's a good way to find rental properties that people don't want anymore. Uh, so thank you very much for your question, Sylvia. I'm looking here to see if I have a question that I can answer in the 90 seconds I have left here. Because we've got a couple more questions, but some of them are pretty complex. Oh, um, here's a question from John in, uh, I believe, South Carolina. Yes, John in South Carolina. Uh, this was in regards to the show that we did on quiet title actions on the on the zombie properties the properties where um people had not paid their payments for a long time but the bank had either not foreclosed or stopped the foreclosure and his question is what is the best source of finding these properties and the answer is if you're doing enough mailings to things like bacon ugly property some of them are just going to turn up some of them you're going to get that story that i thought the property was foreclosed on the only other way I've I've found to 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 find these is to actually keep track of the sheriff sales or the trustee sales in your area and look for the ones where the suit is filed but then the suit is dropped before the sale happens. And honestly, the the only I think realistic way in most areas to do that because there there are hundreds of foreclosures being processed in any given 6-month period is get a VA to do it create a system, hire a virtual assistant, say once a week I want you to go in here and I want you to compare the list of people who were supposed to go into foreclosure with the ones who went to sheriff sale and anybody who's missing, I want you to send the information. So it's not a it's not as easy as uh you know one one would hope, but then again if it was everybody would be doing it. So Thank you so much for your call, John, or your question, John, and to everybody who had questions on real-life real estate investing. We'll have another question and answer week at the end of next month, but we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. <music>